0: Welcome to our statewide broadcast, part of the Connecting the Drops series, a collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community Radio Stations. I'm Maeve Conran here at KGNU in Boulder,
1: and I'm Brent Gardner Smith of Aspen Journalism here in the studios of KD and K in Carbondale. Today, we're looking at water conservation in Colorado. Recent legislation passed by the state legislature now makes it legal for people in Colorado to capture rainwater in barrels. We'll discuss the new law, rain barrels, and other conservation issues today with our guest. Joining me in the KD&K studio is April Long, an engineer and the Clean River Program Manager for the city of Aspen, which has been very active in water conservation through the years.
0: And joining me in the KGNU studio in Boulder will be Peter Mayer, a water conservation engineer who prepared water conservation plans for communities in the Roaring Fork Valley in 2014, including Carpendale, Aspen and Glenwood Springs. He has co-authored a new study, Residential End Uses of Water, version 2, from the Water Research Foundation. We'd like to welcome all of our guests and let you, the listener, know that later in the show, we'll be inviting you to participate in the conversation. You can email your questions to news at kdnk.org or call us later on in the show at 1-800-737-3030. Back to you, Brent.
1: Thank you, Maeve. We're delighted to have April Long, an engineer and the Clean River Program Manager for the City of Aspen with us here in the studio. We convinced her to come down on a beautiful Sunday afternoon to talk about water. April, I guess that's no different than what you do day to day for the city anyway, right? That's right. Tell me what the Clean River Program Manager for the City of Aspen does.
2: Well, in the early 2000s, um, the city of Aspen's citizens discovered that they had a problem with the health of their river. The Roaring, Ro- Roaring Fork River flows through Aspen from up um, high on Independence Pass down all the way to its confluence with the Colorado River and Glenwood Springs. Um, and like I said, in the early 2000s, there was studies done that showed that the macroinvertebrate population, which is essentially the bugs um, in the river, were in poor health and in degrading. And so the citizens felt like this was unacceptable for uh, such a pristine river that came into the city of Aspen. And so they decided they wanted to begin to tackle those issues. And um, they worked with city staff to develop uh, the city's clean river program. And we essentially believe that the reason those bugs are declining or have a degraded population is because of um, three possible reasons. One is stormwater pollution, which is snowmelt and rainwater that, that leaves the mountain or comes during storms, flows through the city streets and picking up all of the pollutants along the city streets, the uh, parking lots, people's houses, and delivers that into the river through the city's outfalls. We also have the other problem, which is a degraded riparian habitat. And the riparian area is the area on the banks of the river. And like other cities um, across the nation, everyone wants to live very close to the river, especially a beautiful river like the Roaring Fork. And so they have built their houses on that property, removed all of the native riparian vegetation, and put in bluegrass lawns, which delivers fertilizers to the river, um, pet waste, things like that. And then the third possible reason is that um, there's a lack of water in critical times, certainly during dry years. Um, The Roaring Fork River has a large trans-basin diversion and several other large diversions before it comes into the city of Aspen. So the water quantity coming through the city becomes very low during late irrigation seasons and certainly during drought years. And that water can heat up. Um, and provides less of an opportunity, less of a space for those bugs to populate. And so those are the three reasons that we think we have a degraded, healthy, or a degraded river in the city of Aspen. And so we have developed the Clean, Clean River Program to begin to tackle those problems.
1: And one very noticeable improvement in the city of Aspen now is around Rio Grande Park in central Aspen, right along the Roaring Fork River. It's been an awful lot of work done to improve the the way stormwater is captured and then filtered back to the river, which any visitor to Aspen now sort of wanders through this area and will notice these ponds next to the river.
2: Right, but they may not know that those ponds have a purpose um, related to removing pollution and delivering cleaner water to our river because they're beautiful and they're very aesthetically pleasing. They seem like they're just part of our park, which is part of our design.
1: You know, We're going to talk about water conservation on this show today and also about the rain barrel legislation that passed recently. And I want to talk with you a little bit about the rain barrel legislation, at least from the standpoint of you're a supporter. Um, people in Colorado beginning on August 10th can legally put two rain barrels in their yard and capture the runoff from their roofs. That's and right. you're a big supporter of this. You're a big fan. You want to go out and do this and the city of Aspen is going to get involved in, in doing this. Why? Why is this important for the city?
2: Like I said, one of the problems with the um, health of the river is the stormwater pollution that reaches the river. And so we have programs in the city and regulations in the city that require all new development and redevelopment to treat the um, runoff coming off of their roofs and off of their driveways and their parking areas. And they're required to treat that on their property before it leaves their property and to remove those pollutants that's picking up on the roof and um, on the pavement and uh, remove those pollutants on their property before they release it to the city streets. So rain barrels can play a significant role in that treatment train. Um, So essentially, right now, those those private developments are having to send their water into rain garden areas or bioretention areas or pervious pavers, and they don't benefit from that water at their own property. So they'll be able to treat the rainwater just like they're required to do now, but they'll actually receive the benefit of using it for irrigation at a time when they want to use it after the storm.
1: It's interesting that uh, this aspect of the rain barrels wasn't really part, I didn't hear, of the pro-rain barrel campaign, that it could also have a positive effect on, on stormwater management.
2: Right. And one of the other benefits is that as, you know, people tend to connect their downspouts um, straight onto their driveway and discharge that water down the driveway into the the city's curb and gutter and in our inlets and piping system. And so it picks up a lot of pollutants along its way. Um, this will, you know, allow it to go into the rain, rain barrels and then be discharged onto a lawn, which is a natural filter of pollutants.
1: I understand Peter yeah. Mayer is now in the KGNU studios. And, Peter, I know you followed the rain barrel um, legislation very carefully. Did the stormwater management aspect ever come up?
3: You know, I didn't hear it uh, described as, as elegantly as, as April just described. And I actually think that the, the potential benefits from stormwater management may be at least as significant as, as the water conservation potential.
1: And Peter, I have to say, I'm a little bit of a rain barrel skeptic. I understand that the program, some of the proponents of it, basically said, you know, it's not really going to make that big of a difference, but it's symbolic. Is it okay to, for me to be a little cranky about rainwater barrels, or should I just get on board here and, and be a cheerleader?
3: No, I think you should be a little bit cranky. I think it is a somewhat of <laughs> much ado about little. Uh, you know, they're estimating that if you use your rain barrel religiously, uh, you know, you will save 1,000 to 1,500 gallons of water. Per year. Now that may sound like a lot, but take a look at your water bill and see how much you pay for a thousand gallons of water. It's probably about five to seven dollars. So, you know, if you spend $50 on your rain
1: barrel, you know, you might pay it off in 10 years if you use it regularly. How do you feel about the symbolism, though? I've heard an awful lot of people say, you know, it's just going to get more people thinking about water and, and water conservation even, and that's a good thing. That's absolutely
3: a good thing. I'm, I'm, I have nothing against rain barrels. I think it's a fine thing for people to do, and I think exactly the symbolic value is very good. Anything that gets people thinking about how to use uh, water efficiently and how, you know, how not to waste it is, is very much a positive thing.
1: And is it a water conservation thing? If I have a rain barrel and I use it, am I saving water? Is that the point? Well, or is it just a convenient source of water for me?
3: You're basically, you're essentially substituting, theoretically, the water that you're capturing in the rain for maybe treated water that, that you would be using from a hose instead. Uh, you know, that, that's one way to think about it.
2: I'd like to go back to cost, if we could, for just a minute. Um you know you're saying that it doesn't save the homeowner that much money considering how much they use um, uh, how much it may, they may be able to use uh, for irrigation but if we think of it in City of Aspen's terms like I was saying we require a significant amount of, of work to be done during development and redevelopment for treatment of the of this stormwater um, that can cost these private residential developments you know anywhere from thirty thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars so their ability to decrease that is significant um, just because of the stormwater treatment that we require. And I believe it's true in other larger cities throughout the state of Colorado um, that they require this kind of treatment of stormwater before it leaves um, larger private, larger private developments.
1: And so you're saying that the, the average homeowner could potentially reduce their costs if they manage what comes off their roofs and comes out of their rain gutters. A little yeah butter.
2: and then additionally it could reduce city's costs if it was implemented across an entire city you would reduce the amount of infrastructure that's required to um, move that water through the city if we're infiltrating that water into the ground then you don't need as large of pipes that you may need um, if everybody is sending their water straight into the curb and gutter.
1: Peter you probably watched this uh, bill go through the legislature it tried it it failed, I think, two years in a row, and then passed, or failed at least one year. Um, what was the opposition? Why did people not want it to pass?
3: Well, you know, there's a belief that that you know detaining this water, you know, in rain barrels is somehow essentially holding water, a water right that belongs to someone else downstream, and that if you actually want to, you know, do that, then you should file for that water right and and make it, make state your claim for that right. Otherwise, you know, the water that falls and lands on the ground belongs to the river and belongs to to users downstream and so that uh, sort of a very purist interpretation of that uh, that that doctrine I think led a lot of uh, people to conclude that the rain barrels weren't really legal in Colorado
1: well it does give everybody the opportunity to build their own little dam and reservoir Right in a very small. It does, and I think
3: the the size. Ultimately, it was the size of the storage that prevailed uh, on on people to to support it, because I think you're only allowed to put in two rain barrels a maximum of about 110 gallons of storage at any one time.
1: And Colorado State University did a study that basically said there's a negligible effect on the amount of water that's going to be left in the system or not. So let's not worry about that. Basically, right, right, Right. that's that's right.
2: This is something that I um, also disagree with from a stormwater management perspective that, you know, if you take empty land and build a development on it, um, you're therefore not allowing the water that would fall on that land to infiltrate into the ground. So you're generating a volume of runoff that is not natural to the natural hydrograph of the river and that a downstream user shouldn't expect to rely on land use practices of upstream um, homeowners or property owners. And so... If you're relying on just the developed ground, um, you know, I think that's a, a risky way to rely on your water use.
1: So it's a more natural state in a way to capture it and exactly. then filter it through your landscape.
3: Yep. And, and if April had been the state engineer for the past 15 years, then we wouldn't have had to have this legislation probably. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Peter, I do want to get you and April engaged here in a little back and forth, because I know that you've written water conservation plans for several communities here in the Roaring Fork Valley, Aspen, Basalt. Carbondale and Glenwood Springs. And so as the expert that they chose to write their own water conservation plan, can you answer this question honestly here with your client live on the radio? How is the city of Aspen doing when it comes to water conservation?
3: Well, I think Aspen is actually exemplary uh, when it comes to water conservation. I'm not just saying that because I've done work for them. It's because when I first got into the field, the first city that I learned about that had done anything in Colorado on water conservation was Aspen. Aspen has really, uh, in some ways, been the leader for the entire state. I think in terms of municipal conservation, really taking it on as a responsibility of the water utility, uh, and and that had le- then led communities like Boulder and Denver and other places in Fort Collins and Greeley to take it up. Uh, I think uh, also very seriously. Um, so. The the you know I, I I have nothing but praise I would say for for the efforts that Aspen has made and it's been a, it's been a sustained effort that's the other thing water conservation you know there there people tend to conflate drought response and water conservation water conservation is really sort of this long term effort to reduce consumption and it take it does take years you know it takes a long time to change out all the toilets in your community it takes a long time to to get everybody to get a new clothes washer it takes a long time to get to make people uh, change their landscape. Uh, and And to alter the irrigation patterns, uh, so so that's the kind of thing that that you know it takes leadership uh, to to do something like that and to to stick with it for for the long term. And That's definitely something that Aspen has done.
1: Is there sort of a checklist that develops that you must be able to do this very quickly, certainly with someone like April uh, in the sense of or R- any. Um, water utility manager, are you doing A, B, and C? For example, are you doing meter water rates? Are you doing leak detection? Are there other things like that that are now basic that used to be fairly innovative?
3: Well, there, so now we have, there's actually a, a water conservation program management and operation standard that has been put together through the AWWA that I wouldn't say it's a gold standard, it's more of a bronze standard. So that's kind of where I start when I look at a utility. I say, how are they matching up against the items on this list? Do they have a conservation-oriented rate structure? That's one of the most important things, to make sure that you're charging customers so they're paying more and more, especially if, if their usage gets very high and wasteful uh you know and and then I'm glad that you brought up a, uh, utility leaks because that's an, another area that I think that that uh, there, we have a lot of progress that can be made on on water loss uh, from our systems in Colorado and that's actually an area that uh, that we haven't done as well as we should have probably.,
1: April, I guess it's fair to ask you what's the biggest challenge that Aspen is facing as it relates to water conservation what what are people in, where can people in Aspen save water, I guess?
2: I think our outdoor water use is um, a lot higher than it should be, especially, and thank you, Peter, for all of the compliments that you gave to the City of Aspen, but there certainly is work that we can do in that area. Our our water use outdoors is on average 45% of the annual water use, and I think that's really high considering we have such a short season for using outdoor water.
1: There are a lot or of lovely. Outdoors. There are a lot of lovely lawns in, in Aspen.
2: They are beautiful lawns, but you can still have beautiful lawns without using the conservation.
1: Well, I noticed too that in in Aspen's uh, water efficiency plan or conservation plan that, that Peter you authored, they talk about this notion of having to educate the property managers because um, the property managers on the hook to make sure the lawn looks beautiful should the owner uh, arrive at any moment from some distant city. And so we have a lot of beautiful lawns that are appreciated, or that are. I don't know, tied to someone's job, the property manager. So we have to educate property managers, I guess, to water less? Is that what you tell them? That must be a tough sell. It's, it's.
3: Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, April, please.
2: No, you go ahead, Peter. I was going to say, you know,
3: I think Aspen has one of the most challenging uh, conservation jobs in America in, in terms of outdoor water use, because you basically have a population that comes largely during the summertime, although it's, you know, winter, wintered also, but, but I think the population swells more in the summertime, and, they are entirely price insensitive. I mean, they do not care what their water bill is, and you know they they care much more about how the quality of their landscape. Uh, so you know, th- there's a big disconnect. And you know, Astor is not the only community that that encounters this. I think every city has some element of the community that is essentially price insensitive. You cannot send them a water bill that will be high enough to to change their mind about about their water use. So you need to look elsewhere. You need to think about other ways of of, of getting to people and, and convincing them that that you know they want to they want to uh, be water efficient or at least not waste water uh, for other reasons uh, and, and than than than
1: just the price. On the yeah. other hand, Peter, who does care about their water bills, right? I mean, they're very low. Oh, that's state, not true right?
3: anymore. I think actually, if you if you get into a situation uh, in, a, in a community with a steep inclining block rate. And and let's say you have a leak or, or something, or you use a lot of water. You know, if you use 50,000 gallons of water, which is a lot of water, but it's not an unheard of amount for for a single-family house to use maybe in a month. If they're irrigating a large a lot. But let's say you have a leak or something and you use use that amount of water, you're going to get a bill in many communities that's $500 or more. Now I, that would wake me up at least. Uh, you know so i do think that you know once you get into the very high volumes at least for a residential sector the, the there are pricing mechanisms in place that do send a strong signal
1: how big are the water bills in aspen
2: i uh, that's a good question i'm not <laughs> sure i'm <laughs> the right, to answer that no, aspen, aspen, aspen has an
1: inclining block
3: rate uh, and 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 you definitely a, definitely tier, yeah, a yeah. tiered rate and it's definitely an an aggressive uh, inclining block rate
1: and it's a question of really whether how much uh Difference that that makes. Do you, you think, Peter? That again. That's one of those things. If if you don't have um, metered or block rates. Uh, what's the best phrase there? Then. Um, as a, as a water provider, then you're really not keeping up with the times? That should just be something that everybody does now? Or are there big hurdles in the way of doing that?
3: Oh no, everyone should have some sort of a conservation-oriented oriented rate structure. There's a lot of different forms that that can take and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know a five-tier rate structure. You can have a very effective two-tier conservation rate structure you're either you know you're you're basically your efficient level and then your 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 excessive level um, i'm a big fan of the water budget based rate structure which is a form of rate structure that has been implemented in boulder and in centennial and in castle rock and that denver water is working on and also in greeley and this is basically a form of rate structure it's an inclining block rate so as you use more you pay uh... the, the price goes up but it's tailored to each property, so that the amount of water you get in each of the different uh, tiers is adjusted based on the size of your landscape, what type of a customer you are, if a residence or if you're a, a hotel or something like that, so that it it, it enables the, the the utility then to send a very strong signal for excessive use because they have an idea of what's a reasonable amount of water usage at that particular property, and if it goes above that, they're much more comfortable than setting a price that that has a, a you know, more more of a bite to it, so I think that, and also when you get your bill, as a, from the customer perspective, every month you get you get sort of a comparison against how you did against your um, allocation for the past month, and that's that's very useful information that I think helps people make decisions about you know whether they wanted to invest in a new toilet or a new clothes washer or maybe landscape changes.
1: You're listening to a statewide program as part of Connecting the Drops, a collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community radio stations. We'll continue our discussion on water conservation in just a moment. Welcome back to our statewide program looking at the state water plan and other water issues. I'm Brent Gardner-Smith, at KDNK in Carbondale, with guest April Long. She's the Clean River Program Manager in the city of Aspen.
0: And I'm Maeve Conran at KGNU in Boulder with Peter Mayer, a water conservation engineer. And today we're talking about water conservation. We'll be inviting listeners to call us at 1-800-737-3050 to join the conversation, or you can email your questions to news at kgnu.org. Well, Peter, we have heard you've been involved in preparing water conservation plans for communities in the Roaring Fork Valley, including Aspen. But you've also co-authored a new study, Residential End Uses of Water, version two, and that's from the Water Research Foundation. And I know that there has been recent trends showing that urban water use is on the decline in the US. Can you talk a little bit about those trends and the study that you've just co-authored?
3: Yeah, so this this study actually was the second study. Uh, the first study was completed in 1999, and so this study is completed in 2016. So, you know, roughly 15 years apart, uh, we use similar methods to look at residential water use in cities across the United States and actually also in Canada. Uh, these studies focus mostly on indoor water use, but also looked at outdoor water use. And really, the the comparative uh, value of the two studies is pretty interesting. So, what we've seen now is on in the indoor side is uh, per capita, so per person water use has declined about 1% per year uh, pretty steadily over this time, so about a 15% reduction over the time of these two studies. The, that change was accomplished largely f- from two end uses only, and those two are, are changes in toilets and changes in clothes washers. And, lo- and really, clothes washers, surprisingly, proved to be the sort of the heavyweight champion of, of water conservation over the, over the past uh, 15 years. Uh, and, and, and there's really been a dramatic reduction in the amount of water that it takes to, to wash a load of clothes. And uh, as people buy new clothes washers, it's getting harder and harder to buy a clothes washer that, that uses more, more water. In the 1999 study, the average clothes washer used about 40 gallons per load. In the new study, it's down to 30 gallons per load. And it's not at all hard to find a clothes washer out there that uses less than 20 gallons per load. So I actually think we're on a trajectory there to have even increased savings. Toilets, it's a similar story, but it's just taking longer to, uh, to take effect. You know, We have national plumbing codes that have been in place since the early 1990s, and then actually in places like Colorado, we have state laws that are even even more stringent codes that impact the the maximum volume uh, for a toilet. So slowly but surely, we are seeing all of the old fixtures replaced in Colorado, and as that happens, uh, we're going to see consumption reduce even further. The the study suggests that on the indoor side, we're only, we're actually a little bit less than 50% saturated with with high efficiency uh, toilets and clothes washers. So that means there's still quite a bit of conservation potential that's out there that's pretty much inevitable, I would argue, at this point, unless there's a large change in, you know, in in national or, or state policy. On the outdoor side, there's some evidence also that water use has gone down, but it's much harder to compare just based on these studies because there are different samples, different cities involved uh, and things like that.
0: Well we did talk a little bit about landscaping and the challenges in certain communities like Aspen where really there is an expectation of having this beautiful lawn and we talked about the end users a lot there changing out some of those fixtures to low flow toilets and showers and, and the washing machines but we have also seen Incentivizing happening at the development end with the kind of restructuring tap fees to a certain degree, and that's what developers are charged to basically hook up to a municipal water system. We're seeing cities like Aurora really trying to use tap fees as a way to incentivize developers pull out some of that landscaping, use lawn as a throw rug as opposed to wall-to-wall carpeting, put in some of those low-flow systems. Aside from Aurora, are we seeing this used? successfully in other cities, and is this really something that you think we could uh, make a big impact in water conservation?
3: Yeah, this is huge. And actually, I would say Westminster is the leader in setting uh, conservation-oriented tap fees, and I think Aurora is basing a lot of their analysis on the work Westminster has done. The The key here with, with, is to, to convince the developers to create a development that is as water-efficient as possible right from the start. So much of our work in water conservation over the past 20 years has been in retrofits and going back into fixed buildings that haven't been done right. And so this is the opportunity to get it right smart from the start is one of the, one of the ways that they say it. But it, it really makes a lot of sense. And so what Westminster pioneered was the idea that, you know, when you're coming in to essentially buy your water meter, to purchase your connection to the water system, and, and that's determined by how much water you're going to use and how much in, instantaneous water you're going to need. But, but if, you, if the developer is able to show that they're going to install a lot of uh, high-efficiency fixtures and, and reduce consumption at the site, they could get a, a reduction on that, that tap fee, that buy-in fee to the water a system and that is a huge benefit. It's really a benefit both to the utility and and to the developer. For the developer it makes it less costly to build the, the development presumably than the homes or, or, or the business whatever they're building is going to be more affordable. From the utility's perspective that, that site is going to use less water. And that gives them extra capacity that they can use for other purposes, including uh, providing it to other customers if if they need. The key thing that Westminster's added in, though, is they've got an aspect. They make sure that those developments continue to use less water over time. Because just because they say they're going to use less water doesn't always mean that they actually do. So they've actually put in mechanisms to track the water use after the the developer has then made this agreement and if if usage exceeds the the uh volume that that was projected initially then then they have a way of actually getting additional uh revenue or different additional money to to pay for that that portion of the system that that they hadn't allocated properly. So this is a this is a huge area and I would expect to see a lot of utilities in Colorado looking very closely at this and adopting similar approaches.
0: Well, particularly when we are looking at the population growth being estimated to just explode here, particularly in the front range, the state demographer says a 20 20- 40 population forecast is about 7.8 million people. That's up from about 5 million just six years ago and about more than 2 million of that growth is likely to happen along the front range between Pueblo and Fort Collins. So it seems like it's it's imperative for those front-range cities, Westminster, Aurora, all of these other cities seeing massive population growth. Do they even have a choice at this point, Peter?
3: They don't. They don't. Now, not all of these cities are poised for, for huge growth. Places like Westminster is fairly built out. Places like Boulder is uh, less so. But there are other places, yes, that are poised for huge growth. Uh, I think uh, we do have some good examples, though. So there's a new development going in south of Denver called Sterling Ranch. That's going to uh, ostensibly be one of the most water-efficient communities ever built. Now, you could argue that it should never be built in the first place. That's a whole different argument. But the, given that it is going to be built, it's going to be hugely water-efficient, and they're going to have built-in water budgets, built-in low-income back, uh, low-impact development aspects to to retain stormwater, uh, as April was discussing for Aspen, uh, as well as you know uh, low-flow fixtures and and a bunch of mandatory fixture uh, features. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that goes and you know the what extent that they're successful at, at creating a, a high efficiency community there
0: that's peter Mayer, who's a water conservation engineer my guest here at the kgnu studio on this sunday afternoon we are part of a statewide call-in show in collaboration with kdnk in carbondale and we're doing this as part of our statewide water series connecting the drops today's show focusing on water conservation back to you brent gardner smith at kdnk
1: Peter, I do have a big picture question for you. It seems as if per capita use of water is going down. Certainly, in the reports you did for the communities in the Roaring Fork Valley showed that cities are being able to drive water use down or at least conservation rates up. And yet, when we talk about a statewide need for water, certainly in the context of the Colorado Water Plan, it's always based on, well, we need to do this because our population is growing so much. Well, if in fact we're driving water use down, even as populations increase, is population growth really the, the boogeyman in terms of water use, or do we got this? That is the, that
3: is the multi-billion dollar question that, that Colorado is going to have to look in the mirror and ask itself over the next few years as we start to update the state water supply initiative, and take a look at what our gap really is, because just as you point out, that we now really, I think, can honestly say we have a disconnect between population growth and water use, so that that we do not necessarily. We're, I mean, obviously, there's some increment of water use increase that's occurring, but that's being offset uh, by by decreases in the existing population. So for some period of time in the future. Yes, I do think we are going to be able to keep up with population growth largely through conservation, but it is not, that is not, we're not going to do that forever. And it would be irresponsible of us, I think, to, to think that that was going to solve our problems uh, forever. It's, it's helped us a lot over the last 20 years. It's going to help us some more. But we need to take a, a hard look at, at, at what's going to happen and, 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 and how popular our state is, I think. I think. I think, frankly, some of the population forecasts we've been looking at may be underestimates, given some of the changes that we've seen. I know that's a horrible thing to think about, but the last few years have been startling. Uh, you know, uh, with, with some of the, the growth in Colorado.
1: Peter, it's also struck me in the plans you wrote for Aspen, Basalt, Carbondale, and Glenwood that basically they all seem to be uh, within the scope of, of their water needs, even though their populations are growing. Are they unusual in that respect? And, and certainly, April, with Aspen, um, is, is Aspen going to be limited by how much water it has, or does it have plenty as well? I just asked you both a question at the same time. I apologize. Why don't you go ahead, Peter?
3: I think that you know what you're seeing is examples of good water planning. I mean, these this the, our water systems in Colorado are remarkable. And you look at the history and the effort and the work that it, that it took to create these water systems. You know, the, there there's some remarkable work that was put in and some really good planning. And they were planning for you know they didn't understand you know the conservation wave that was going to hit uh... you know, twenty years ago so they were planning for much higher demands uh... you know so we're actually benefiting you know from from a lot of the work of of our forebears here i think in in developing the water supply and that doesn't mean though that that we can sort of rest on that we really gotta make sure that we're continuing to to plan responsibly for the future
1: aspen would seem to have the water it needs for i the would future.
2: A, well i'd agree with peter and and just to add that you know because of the city of aspen's um, forward thinking and approach to water conservation, we have been able to meet the needs of our customers and our growing population. Um, there's certainly unknowns. I mean, we're still talking about climate change and exactly what are we going to do. In the city of Aspen, climate change is a, you know, obviously a, a critical um, planning effort that we're going through. And we, we're trying to think of things like if if the timing of our snowpack is different than it is now, if we don't have snow on Aspen Mountain on Christmas Day, what are we going to do and the city of Aspen doesn't have a backup water supply um we don't have a storage element um so it it can be you know it it looks okay but there's the great unknown that we can't plan for
1: so is that something peter that a lot of communities are now starting to to try and build in like well it looks like we're okay unless of course we have a 500 year drought and then we're toast
3: well so drought is something that that utilities have uh, Always, or not always, but generally, or should be planning for. I think climate change is the new thing that that is, because and it's a big uncertainty in Colorado. Uh, it, you know, we are in this area where it looks like it might be wetter sometimes, it might be drier sometimes. Utilities, you know, they got to think about you know from both perspectives, and and uh, it's it is a challenge, and and so, you know, I I think. That that we've we've really made great progress on water conservation. We're going to continue to make great progress, but we really we also need to continue to look at at all of the aspects of water supply uh, as we move forward into the future.
1: So we are talking about water conservation, and I guess Peter, there's in April, there's two ways to look at it. One is about well, it's good to conserve water because water is a precious resource, and in a dry year, you might not have any. But there's also a reason, and this is certainly what you focus on, April, in terms of river health, there's a reason to conserve water because it can leave water in the rivers and, and keep them healthier. So first, Peter, is that true? If I am mindful of, if I turn off the tap when I'm brushing my teeth, do I help the river that I care about in the state?
3: Well, not immediately, probably, because most of the rivers are regulated through dams and, and controlled releases. Uh, but I think in the long term, yes, I think you can say say that that using less water is is certainly going to be likely to be more beneficial to the river than if you use more water.
1: And specifically in Aspen, if I don't brush my teeth in Aspen, am I helping the Roaring Fork River?
2: Well, that's an interesting point, and it's a little tricky in the city of city of Aspen. We uh, our water sources come from Castle and Maroon Creek, and not from the Roaring Fork River. Um, so, conserving water in Aspen improves the water availability in Castle and Maroon Creek and in roaring, in the Roaring Fork below those confluences, but it doesn't improve the stretch of the river that is unhealthy in the city of Aspen, which is above Castle Creek, but below Difficult Creek. Um, however, if you live on the Front Range and you conserve water um, in Colorado Springs or Aurora, you could... Release the, relieve the pressure off of the Roaring Fork River because of the trans-basin diversion. And so, so we are impacted by the water use of water users in the Front Range.
1: Well, and that's a great point. Should we talk about that a little bit, Peter? Any sensitivity, you think, between East Slope and West Slope and who should conserve more? Right?
3: <laughs> well, there's no question that we should conserve more in the Front Range. I mean, you know, the, the, the water that is brought, uh, you know, through trans Mountain Divergence is diversions is entirely consumptive. Uh, of of the colorado basin or whatever basin it it is brought away from other diversions you know if you divert from that river you know you're putting a lot of the water back you know through through the water treatment plant. so definitely you know the transbound that is the most precious valuable water uh, that we have if you think about it i mean that's the water that that we're spending the most money to bring that we, we we've invested all of the infrastructure in to create And that in most communities in the Front Range are actually able to use that water to extinction in some cases. So they even have different abilities with that water uh, and to to be able to do things with that water that they can't do with, with, with other water sources.
1: I'd like to say for the record that as a western sloper, I'm evolving and I know that my friends and neighbors on the Front Range do care about the western slope rivers and do care about using water wisely. Is there a lot of progress, Peter, that you're seeing up and down the Front Range or is there just a tremendous amount that still could be done?
3: I think there is a lot of progress, but there is still a lot that can be done, uh, for sure. <laughs> you know, I think on the indoor side, I think we've, we've sort of uh, covered that pretty well, and I think we're, we're sort of in, uh, on, on a strong trajectory there. On the outdoor side, though, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, the last 20 years with the Xeriscape movement and really a, a, a change in the aesthetic uh, that's just, I think, really at the start uh of of this movement and i think we're still at the cusp of exploring what a water efficient landscape is going to look like uh and i think i ex- i'm kind of excited to see what it's going to look like you know 20 years from now and what what people will think is an attractive landscape i think landscape we can't under, we can't underestimate the value of landscape though in the urban environment and and the, the you know, people tend to discount the value of, of outdoor water use and think that it's you know it's completely discretionary and we can do without it I actually think it's really important. I think it adds a lot to the quality of our life. I don't think that means that we should be wasting it by any means, but I don't think we can just simply discount uh, you know, outdoor water use and landscapes and think that we can, we can just you know, curtail it and get rid of it uh, entirely. That, that would be wrongheaded and I think would, would actually uh, you know, degrade our, our quality of life.
1: Do you get this, April, from people on the front range who say, well, listen, as soon as they, Aspen tears up its lawns, we'll tear up ours?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely get that sentiment. Aspen has beautiful lawns and um, certainly, like I said earlier, could could certainly reduce its uh, use on our lawns. I think that what we're going to be focusing on in the future, like you were alluding to, Peter, is that, you know, what looks beautiful to people and people have moved to the state of Colorado, you know, for lots of reasons. One of those could be Colorado wildflowers. I mean, they're an amazing source of um, beauty in our, in our state and people, you know, hike into the mountains to see them. You can plant those wildflowers in your yard, certainly, certainly in a city like Aspen, and they have much lower water use than any other uh, annuals that you may have planted in your yard previously.
1: You're listening to a statewide program as part of Connecting the Drops, a collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community Radio Stations. We'll continue our discussion on water conservation in just a moment.
0: a statewide program as part of Connecting the Drops in collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education. I'm Maeve Conran here at the KGNU studio in Boulder.
1: And I'm Brent Gardner-Smith of Aspen Journalism in the studio at KDNK in Carbondale, along with April Long, the Clean River Program Manager for the City of Aspen.
0: Well, Peter Mayer, our guest here at KGNU, I know your focus as a water engineer is really on municipal use, as is April's in Aspen, and that's been the focus of our conversation here on conservation. But it seems that the elephant in the room, anytime we talk about water use or water conservation in Colorado, is agriculture. I've heard different statistics, but it seems that about 80% of water used in the state is going to ag, and so when we're talking about installation of low-flow toilets or xeriscaping or all of these different measures that we've been discussing, are any of them worth anything when we look at the huge volume of water being consumed by the agricultural sector?
3: Well, uh, yeah, you guys, you definitely are good at identifying the elephants in the room here. Yeah, that, that is, of course, uh, you know, the, I think 80% is probably a, an underestimate of the agricultural sector as uh, consumption of water in Colorado. Uh, and honestly, I mean, if, so if you think about, you know, even a small transfer Uh, of a few percentage points essentially uh, from ag to urban could you know if it was done properly you know take care of the urban water supply needs for years and years to come.
0: So just to clarify are you talking about taking water away from agricultural use putting it towards municipal use we've had a lot of discussion about this buy and dry and the impact on colorado's agricultural economy which is really a, an essential part of the state as well
3: yeah i agree i'm not i'm not disputing that at all but i also think that if you look at the urban economy uh, that's also a huge part of the state and uh, a small, uh, you know, the the other the other thing, the elephant in the room with the ag sector is that they say don't do anything with our water, you know. Meanwhile, they're when the time comes, they are very much happy to sell their water rights uh, when when the appropriate buyer emerges and and you know the 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 time occurs. So, you know, we we have to live with the reality that we have a private property right out there, which is, which is water, which and. and there is going to be some amount of water. There is It is undeniable in Colorado, I believe, that there is going to be some amount of water from agriculture that is moved, that is some land that is going to be dried up, and that water will be transferred to the urban sector. So the question then that we have to ask ourselves is, how are we going to manage that transfer? Can we do it in a way that, that minimizes the impact of the agricultural community, that maintains agricultural buffers around communities and, and maintains the most highly productive agriculture Agricultural land and valuable land, you know. If we, uh, you know, then this is where I'm, I'm going to really step on. Sometimes, you know, if we leave it to the free market, we may not get the the vision of of water agricultural water use that we want uh, for the long term future.
0: Does it have to be either or? It always seems that we're putting these two things in some type of oppositional, uh, you know, scenario. It's either ag, it's either. Urban growth. Is there a way to have both? Are there conservation methods that could be employed in agriculture here in Colorado so that there is more?
3: Yeah, and we're, w- a lot of work has gone on in this, and so, and so you, where you had temporary leasing. So, in, so really, the big the big crisis for the cities is drought years. That's when the cities, in, in normal years, most cities have enough water and it's not a problem. It's the drought years where, where, where the, the real crises occur. And so that's when they try to establish uh, a temporary lease arrangement so that they can uh, temporarily take agricultural water and then bring it to the cities and use it. The, I am strongly uh, in favor of these type of arrangements. There's very compli- complicated arrangements that need to be made to make sure that it uh, vi- doesn't violate Colorado water law and that the the water rights are not lost. And and people are very conscious and and, and worried about that, and I can understand that. But I do think this is an important uh, element that we need to continue to work on. This really could be an important solution for the future.
0: And I know that is happening in certain ditch uh, companies, in southern Colorado particularly, but you do mention Colorado Water Law. Yet another elephant in the room, uh, Peter, because it is incredibly complex. And I've heard from a lot of people that really any comprehensive legislation on conservation or otherwise is tied up so much with Colorado Water
3: Law. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm not an expert in Colorado Water Law. I, you know, I, I know enough probably just to be dangerous.
0: Well, you have though been involved in in some pieces of legislation. Talk a little bit about um when uh, that was not successful. I know that you were working on yes, one with yeah, Casey well, Becker. So
3: so the, uh, we were we were very happy about the rain barrel legislation that passed this year. But there was a, a less happy story uh, on on uh, another piece of legislation. I worked with uh, Representative Casey Becker to pass uh, a le- piece of legislation that would have required. Uh, water utilities of uh, any any size you know more more than uh, essentially covered entities in Colorado to annually conduct a water audit which essentially establishes the volume of water loss in the system through, through a set of prescribed procedures established through the American Water Works Association. This is the legislation that has been very effective in Georgia, in Tennessee, in Texas, and then recently was just passed in California. And it really is the, an important aspect of urban water provision that has been ignored for a long time. That is the water that is lost through leaks and main breaks in the system, but also water that's lost through bad accounting, through meters that are, that are inaccurate, through uh, connections that aren't metered and that have been forgotten about, uh, through a variety of different mechanisms. And the, the water audit is a very uh, valuable process for the utilities to do on an annual basis to understand the, their particular water loss and, and whether it makes economic sense to, to go after those savings and try and reduce that water loss and particularly the real losses of water, you know, the physical uh, leaks in the pipes, things like that, that that's consumptive loss uh, to the system, and that that's the highest value of water that these utilities have paid for and, and, and brought and conveyed and treated to EPA standards, and then it's just leaked out of the system and lost. So it really is is worthwhile to go after. Uh, I'm, Casey Becker and I are, are hopeful that we'll, we can reintroduce this next year. We know in Colorado it takes multiple years to... Uh, get legislation on on water through the uh... through the general assembly usually there's several years of education and and definitely that's what we're doing this year.
0: That's Peter Mayer, a water conservation engineer. He has worked on water conservation plans for communities in the Roaring Fork Valley back in 2014, including Aspen and Carbondale and Glenwood Springs. He is our guest here at KGNU as part of our statewide series, Connecting the Drops. Today we're hosting a statewide call-in show on conservation and if you would like to join the conversation, we're here till 6 o'clock. The number is 1-800- 737 3030 1 737 3030. You can email news at kgnu.org and we'll try and have your voice heard. Back to you, Brent at KDNK. Well,
1: I have a question for April Long. She's the Clean River Program Manager for the City of Aspen here with me in the studio. In the context of giving more flexibility to To irrigators out there. One of the things the city is doing, it's entering into a non diversion agreement with the Colorado Water Trust where it will, instead of diverting its full decreed amount into an irrigation ditch, it will leave the water in the river. And the city feels it can sort of pioneer this uh, and show irrigators that if the city's willing to do it, maybe uh, they might be willing to consider it as well, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Peter, you were saying earlier. You know it's during times of drought that everybody needs the water um, and one of the other elephants in the room that doesn't get discussed and 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 often doesn't have a voice in this is the health of the rivers that we're depleting with all of these water uses and the Roaring Fork River in the city of Aspen is a pristine river coming into the city of Aspen and then goes through some some significant health impacts um, as it moves through the city and one of those reasons is because it's it's heavily diverted it has a trans-basin diversion and other significant irrigation rights upstream of the city and as it comes through the city it it is depleted down to you know maybe uh five cfs which is gives us the ability to walk across the river during times of drought without getting your feet wet um which is you know not uh, the aesthetic that people move to the Colorado Rocky Mountains for. It's
1: not in the brochure. No,
2: that's not in the brochure. And so um, it also impacts, you know, the economy and the health of the river. Um, And we're working very hard to restore that. That that stretch of river is listed on the state's 303D list for water quality impairments. And so this is one of those situations where water rights and water quality um, regulations from the federal government and from the state government, um, you know, butt heads. And so the city is working with the Colorado Water Trust and with I believe it was Senate Bill 19 of last year that allows us to stop irrigation um, or stop diverting into our irrigation ditch um, during times of need for five out of 10 years without having that um, be a problem in our accounting for our water rights. Um, so it gives us that ability to, to return some flow into the river to try to improve that health during times of need and times of uh, critical droughts.
1: And I think what's notable about that is the city's sort of pioneering this this use of non-diversion agreements, and now a number of irrigators here in the Crystal River Valley outside of Carbondale are also considering them. So we have a caller. Uh, we'd like to take a call from Joel in Glenwood Springs. Joel, you have a question for us? Yes, I do. Uh, Go ahead. It's not a question, Zach so it's just a comment Um I live on the Colorado River, or excuse me, but, <laughs> sorry, a little nervous, the Roaring Fork
3: River here in Glenwood Springs, and uh, uh-huh. I just wanted to thank you for all your efforts with the conversation, uh, in conversation that you have today. I plan on now that I'm able
2: to start my own water barrels and uh, start watering my garden out of that.
1: Well, Joel, thank you for your call. It's interesting to um, talk about conservation on a day when the Roaring Fork River is is rising, and maybe this is a question for you, Peter. These are we having this conversation at the wrong time of year? Should we be doing it in late August when things are, are dried up? Because here on the western slope, this week anyway, it sure seems like we got a lot of water. This is the best time to to plan
3: and implement water conservation. This is actually when when I think you can really do things. Uh, it, when we're water short, it's all hands on deck, and and it's very difficult to to actually get the the sort of long-term conservation as, uh, elements taken care of. It's it's much more of a crisis mode. You know, drought presents opportunity, and certainly there have been, there have been a lot of progress made in, in those times, but I think this is the great time to be working on water conservation.
1: I also thought it was interesting, and Joel, thank you again for your call, that, that Joel mentioned that he was enthused about getting his own rain barrels. What do you think, Peter? The numbers show that maybe 10% of people in Colorado would, would, would do this. Uh, is this going to Catch on? Uh, we'll see. Uh, if 10% would be a huge amount. And April, you mentioned the city of Aspen is going to actively get into this. Do you know yet what they're going to do? How far along is the program?
2: I'm not sure yet. It's at its a infancy. We're um, hiring an intern for the summer that's going to help me work on this, but we're going to be um, investigating what we can do with rain barrels. I know. One thing I would like to push on the rain barrel legislation—it's only for residential uses right now—and I and I would really love—I mean, you know—I'm very happy that it got approved this year, and I don't want to don't want to sound like I'm um. She's not satisfied. I'm not satisfied, satisfied, but I do. I would love for this to be allowed in um, public facilities, like you know, the city of Aspen would love to put this on our city hall, um, but also you know, in commercial facilities as well, especially on a small scale. And uh, one of the things I wanted to add about rain barrels, one of the benefits that we haven't discussed is just the 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 ability when you use your rain barrel to irrigate your lawn, that water is infiltrated back into the ground. And it provides for groundwater recharge, which is a huge aquifer underground, restores uh, water to our rivers during these um, low flow periods, which tend to happen in August and September. And that's when that water returns back to the river through groundwater recharge. So.
1: So I got to push back a little bit. I'm kind of a klutz, and I watched a video. I'm kind of a klutz and kind of a geek. So I watched a video on how to make your own rain barrel, and it looked like it was kind of beyond me. You need like a drill, and you got to drill a hole, and you got to hook up the hose. (laughs) April, you're an engineer, and you're laughing at me. You're like, this, it's easy. You can, I can do this.
2: I haven't done it myself, but okay. I I will try it and I'll get back to you and let you know how easy it is.
1: Peter, you got your own rain barrel or no? <laughs> uh,
3: I have installed a rain barrel before. Yes, uh, uh, you know okay. there, there's <laughs> there. It, it's non-trivial. You know, I think you make a point that that I don't think uh, every everyone will be able to do it just you know from the things they have lying around their house uh, without creating perhaps a mosquito breeding ground. But, um, you know, so I I think your Home Depot and box stores are probably going to start doing a pretty good business in these things.
1: I mean, they do have to have a screen and they do have to be closed. And this notion of getting enthused about it and then blowing it off and leaving an open barrel on the side of your house, that's not the point, right? That is definitely not the point.
3: That would be counterproductive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's how I probably uh, would most likely approach it. Peter, I think it's fair to throw you a real open-ended question. We've got five minutes left if anyone uh, else would like to pose a question. I think it's fair to pose one to you, Peter. And this is, you've done these plans for the Roaring Fork Valley, then the Roaring Fork Valley did a regional water conservation plan. How unusual is that in Colorado, and should we be expecting more regional cooperation among utilities?
3: So the, the work in the Roaring Fork Valley that, that I participated in was really an exceptional uh, situation. It was a great cooperation uh of the five communities and um also with the water co- colorado water conservation board and the rudai reservoir authority you know it i don't think all areas of colorado are capable of that sort of uh, uh, community and, and collective uh cooperation but i do think that it is something that other communities need to, to start thinking about uh, and I know that in the, the Grand Valley and in, in the Grand Junction area, they've done a regional water conservation plan also, so it, it's not like it's unheard of. But there, there's something like that has, you know, not been done as successfully, let's say, in the Front Range area. I and mean, there's, there's been some Dr. Cog efforts and some regionalism, but largely uh, water conservation has been uh, sort of a utility by utility um, effort. And I, I think there could be some, a, a lot of uh, benefits to utilities actually teaming up, particularly on, on topics like water loss and things like that, they, they can really benefit from working together, I think, and, and teaming resources.
0: Well, Peter, we just have a couple of minutes left and I do want to ask you a question about greywater use because Denver is seriously exploring this and Denver Water itself, according to their estimations, they say that for every 1,000 greywater systems that could be installed in single family homes, enough water could be saved to serve about 125 households per year. I mean, do you think that's something that needs to be explored by municipalities, particularly the very large ones already and the ones that are expecting even more population growth?
3: I am not a big fan of residential gray water. I think that it's, uh, you know, there, there's potential there, but in general, I think having a lot of small systems where the water is being r- treated and reused, there, there is potential for health, for negative health impacts. Uh, and it concerns me that that, that you there, you might not have the regulation uh, and, and the oversight to, to ensure the public health is is maintained. That's that the, the public health aspect is is my single biggest concern uh, with gray water. The second biggest concern with gray water is I don't think it's very cost effective. I think that w- if you look at doing gray water maybe on a more of a community scale uh, or neighborhood scale rather than a household by household scale, it, it might, might look more attractive. Um, but, uh, you know, in general, I, I don't think that that is uh, going to be a, a real long, t- I, I like rain barrels, you know, I think it's a good thing to think, you know, there's, there's positive aspects of it, but I don't see it as really the long term solution to the large water supply issues that we face.
0: Well, I'd like to bring April Long from the city of Aspen in here. You have something to say about gray water use.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry, Peter, I would disagree. I think gray water is, you know, I think we should explore all of our water resources and all of the ways that we use water. And I don't think gray water is such a bad idea. And I know what you're talking about with the health effects, but if you look at gray water as just um, white water that's wasted, and so... You could, you know, while you're waiting for your water to warm up in your bathtub or in your sink, you can just collect that water and use that on your garden. So if you even think of it in very small ways, it just um, broadens the use of water and broadens people's perspective about exactly what they're doing with their water and how
3: valuable it can be. I so. don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's correct. Um, and I would, I would I like to it. point
1: out. Go ahead. Peter. Yeah, I was going to
3: but, but uh, the, the one thing that makes it tough in Colorado is that not all of our water rights are uh, in the cities or can be used to extinction. So not all cities, there are some cities that might have no ability to to uh, legally uh, do use gray water at this point.
0: Well, you've been listening to a statewide program as part of Connecting the Drops, a collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community radio stations. My guest at KGNU has been Peter Mayer, a water conservation engineer.
1: April Long, the Clean River Program Manager with the City of Aspen, has been my guest here in the KD&K studios in Carbondale. I'd like to thank Evan Perkins, John Banks, Gavin Dahl, and Steve Skinner for their help with this broadcast today.
0: Uh, And thanks to the Colorado Foundation for Water Education. Find out more about their updated Citizens' Guide to Colorado Water Conservation, which looks at water conservation technologies, incentive programs, regulations and policies. And you can listen to more of our Connecting the Drops programming at their website, Your Colorado. and thanks to CoBank as well for support of the Connecting the Drops series you've been listening to KGNU and KDNK thanks for listening it is 6 o'clock